What, did you think you were getting a TED Talk here? Welcome to Common Threads. This is an interview series with the Highland Park High School class of 1995. to the banana that uh, uh, Mauricio Catalan's banana that sold at Miami last year. There was an edition of three. They sold three of them. It's an edition of three. It was, duct, it was duct tape banana to a wall. It, there was tons of frenzy, tons of hype. I, I walked by the booth because I know Gallery Parrots very well. I've done business with them. And they sold the first one. I can't remember if it was $150,000 or $250,000. Okay, today I had a really fun conversation with Ashley Tatum. She is running Tatum Art Advisory. And our conversation catches up with Ashley and is just a fun conversation about art. Um, I hope you guys enjoy. This call What's is up, being John? recorded. Hey, how are you how doing? Are you? Good. I'm well. Oh my gosh, so good to hear your voice. I gotta, yeah, I gotta be honest with you. I've cheated a little bit here because I've been listening to that podcast on the modernness. That's where it was, it was really fascinating listening to that. I forgot. I didn't forget that I'd done that, but it was a long time ago. How many years ago was that? I have no idea, but it provided me with a ton of information. (laughs) (laughs) I'm good. I'm I'm just, I'm lifting that and putting that on your bio. They did a great job. The Jim and Jim. Are those guys still around? Are they still doing that? They are. They are. I still get their emails just like on their week. They do like a weekly. Here's a cool contemporary art home for sale. And here's a fun gallery show to go see. And something that's just a little good marketing for them. Yeah, they're super, super nice. How's COVID affected the art scene? Can people go to, you really can't go to galleries, can you? You can't do anything. You can't. Yeah. Most of, of what I can say to you is, is going to be based on the art market pre-COVID. But galleries are, I have surprisingly been deadly busy. Like normally in the summer, the art world all over the place shuts down because people go on holiday and galleries close, right. and vacation and whatnot. But right. this year I have been, it's like been one of my best years ever. And I'm assuming it's because people haven't been traveling. They're not going to events. They're not shopping for fancy clothes and they're sitting at yeah. home staring at their walls going, hmm. Well, and that's really interesting because if you look at the sales of Sonos speakers, they're through the roof. And it's just because people are sitting at home. Bored. You're like, they need to do, well, they need to do an upgrade. They need to have a better stereo system. They need to have a better television. They need to have, I mean, think about all the Netflix and all the streaming services that are being digested. Oh, it's yeah. crazy. It's it crazy. And really it, crazy. And if you're in art, if you're really into contemporary art, I would think that people would be looking around the walls. And if there's a bare wall in the house, it's probably like an itch that needs to be scratched. Exactly. I'm a victim of the same thing because we actually redid our kitchen and now we need a bigger of something because our wall is twice the size. So I'm shocking really? myself. What are you thinking about? What do you what What do you like? What art does Ashley Tatum like? You know, art is one of the most objective things there is in terms of luxury items. I like it's. I'd have to show you. It's too hard to describe. My art collection is all over the place. Okay. Uh, it's pretty eclectic. I mean, I've got some photography. I have some wildlife pieces that are they're very in a very contemporary painterly fashion. Some of them, like Alexis Brockman is one artist. We own a couple pieces, uh, one from the early 90s, one from late 2000s. They're very different. And it has this underlying tone of genetic modifications in our food and, and how we consume, you know, and how we grow as agriculture these days. And so there's there's a little bit of political undertones to it, but it's a beautiful painting. You would know just by looking at it. 
Um, yeah. I, just, I, 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 have have I mean, just explain. It's always funny with art. If you look at somebody, what is it? The Kooning? You really need somebody to sit there and just explain everything to you. Like what oh, yeah. The more, means. Yeah, especially with abstract expressionism and minimalism. And, you know, there's a thing called post-internet art. And, yeah, there's a lot of really cerebral things that you need to read a book or a serious critical essay to understand in order to understand it. There's a lot of crazy stuff out there. I scratch my head at half of it, but yeah. I'll get to you understand it. Kind of interesting. Mean you you were to- talking about, no, I was, you were talking about, like with artists. Do you know some of the artists that you have in your house? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I worked for okay. galleries for 13 years. You get a lot of gifts over the years. That's one of the advantages of being an artist. They can trade their stuff uh, for other stuff. But yeah, I have personal relationships with some of them. Some of them I just have admired from afar and was finally able to afford it. Although Newt really is the major buyer here. My collection, my personal little collection is very small. You know, because I fall in love with something new every month. And I'm always shopping for my clients. So that's a huge variety of taste and budget. But I have to put their needs before mine. Okay. That kind of touches on my first question I really wanted to ask you. What, for working in a gallery for 13 years, what is, and just ballpark it, don't give me an exact figure, but what is the most expensive piece of art you've either sold or seen or just been a part of? Oh, yeah. I never disclose the exact price just for and not, you know, right. anonymity of my clients. But but I will say um, over a million bucks. That was a pretty big day for me. Yeah. Okay. I worked my ass okay. off for it. Oh, wow. What's the commission like on that? It depends. It depends on if it's something from the primary market versus secondary market. Secondary market okay. referring just means previously owned auction versus gallery or direct from a studio. It kind of industry standard is on a gradation scale. So usually the more expensive the piece of art is, the lower your commission. But okay, it yeah, evens out that makes in sense. the end. Like well, I what charge is re- my clients 20% usually for a, a commission on whatever okay. the ultimate sales price will be for a work of art. I negotiate a sales price. Galleries will give me bigger discounts than them walking in off the street. So then I charge from that sales price. They still get a big discount. And then I charge 20% if it's $50,000 and under. The more okay. expensive it is, the lower my commission because that's just okay. what's fair to the buyer. If you're doing something with, you know, just you go 500K and above, I would think that. Yeah, you you're, you're going to definitely... usually one to two to three percent max. OK. All right. And what, like, what are and it depends, too, on how many it, it is kind of. Yeah, the art market and real estate markets are sort of similar. It, it, they're both roller coasters and they operate via commission. Um, well, it's, it's very illiquid. It's just uh-huh. you, you can't really. These, these aren't assets that freely trade. It's, it's by exactly. appointment only. And that's wow. So a million dollars. So you worked your tail off on that one, huh? I did. I did a lot of whining and dining to get that sale closed. Where do you meet your clients? Back in the gallery days, it was foot traffic. They would come in and certain people collect specific artists repeatedly. And so you just develop relationships over time. I've been fortunate because of who I used to work for. They were two pretty big time art dealers. One had a museum academic background. The other was a big into... um, American art is a specialty, is a big businessman, and the two, their combined resources and working for them for nine years allowed me to build a little database. And I've been working on my own now for about eight years. So I'm That's just awesome. fortunate to be working by referral only. Do you like, do you visit houses? Are you always, is it, are your clients yeah, saying, I, hey, fix my house or my office or what? I used to have a space that I, Rinsed it out with an interior designer colleague, but and I had some consignments on inventory, but not a whole lot. I don't take on consignments very often. Yeah. And I was just, I realized I was just throwing money down the drain on rent when I could be putting that easily back into my operating expenses because I'm always visiting museums, 
going to other people's homes, going to galleries. Pre-COVID, I was traveling at somewhere new city every three weeks. And so, yeah, I just work from home now. What were you... Were you all about American Airlines, like Admiral's Club, Executive Platinum, and all that fun stuff? <laughs> yeah, I, I was. And tried to bump, Just, you know, private flights if I could. Oh, really? With, so with, you were, with wealthy well, clients. You were doing like, like a bucket seat? You were you were just try, hitchhiking on private? <laughs> private pla- that's it's, great. Well, you have to go to art fairs. The art world is, is very global these days. And since COVID, everything's gone virtual. So I'm going practically uh-huh. blind, scrolling through all these things. And lurking, looking at them virtually, but it's what we have to do. So yeah, I would fly. You know, people want to go shop to fairs, and it's not the most ideal situation to learn about art, but it is the best opportunity to find something because you've got galleries from a hundred different countries across the world in one spot for four days. So yeah, you know, we'll yeah. fly to New York, we'll fly to Chicago, and just walk around. You were mentioning like on the monitors, you were talking about the Dallas Art Fair. What is the evolution of that? Sounds like it's been pretty incredible. Oh, it's been fantastic. It's been a huge coup for the city. I mean, the contemporary art scene in general has developed tremendously over the past, say, 20 years. We have world-class art institutions both here and in Fort Worth, DMA, the Nasher, the Dallas Contemporary Museum. They all have global recognition. And I serve on the board, the executive board of the D.C., and I think we probably have more international press than Dallasites even realize or know about the D.C.'s existence. But our educational department is fantastic, and we engage with all of our area schools. So hopefully we'll continue to develop members and support so we can continue mounting poignant exhibitions. But having said that, I should point out a global comparison because, say, for example, Berlin. It has over Uh 400 galleries. New York City, the same. London, around 200. Dallas, Mm -hmm. maybe 30. And that's for-profit and not-for-profit combined. So we still have room for development. So what, I mean, what, who, who has a nonprofit? What does a nonprofit look like? Well, a nonprofit would just be like a non-collecting museum. Okay. 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 It doesn't buy things for a permanent collection. It just does shows. But so, um, back to the commercial side of things, gallery business is pretty challenging to stay afloat. I mean, selling art in general isn't that easy. It's a luxury item. It's objective. I personally yeah. think it's a necessity and can't imagine living without art. But most new galleries that open shouldn't expect to turn a profit for, I'd say, at least a couple of years. You need to find a backer or have a substantial savings account. The classic labor. Right. Product. So what, I mean, what is the model? Is it, is, are you just, are you doing marketing over, it just, it's all foot, foot traffic, referral? How are you, how, what do you do for marketing and just saying, I've got this gallery? Is it getting I, out in... I, the community? Yeah, it's going to art openings. It's going okay. to museums. It's going to dinner parties. I mean, pre-COVID again. Um, yeah. You know, it's traveling. It's going to art fairs. It's networking, constant networking. It's, um, you know, the Dallas Art Fair has been huge for the city because, you know, people in Seoul, Korea really didn't know about Dallas until they came. And they, they love right. our sense of community here because even though we're a big city, it's comparatively to really, really big cities, you know, there's, there's still kind of a friendly affair, uh, you know, in the air. And uh, it's, but it's brought tons of galleries from all over the world to appreciate the culture that Big D has to offer. You know, we have several of the yeah. top world top art collectors living here. Yeah. I mean, what is, is the Nasher family considered, is that, that's considered probably the top, right? Yeah. Um, there are Chopskis or another. Oh um, yeah. What is that house yeah. like? That thing's crazy. What is that? <laughs> Well, unfortunately, two by two is canceled this year. Yeah, it's it's pretty nuts. It's an insane party. They they do host tours to school classes and, and private gatherings in their where it's called the Wachowski Warehouse and uh-huh. um, up off of seventy five near 
Walnut Hill or something. It's just literally two big warehouses that they've kind of made into one gigantic maze of cubes. And it just, they, they rotate their art out. And so, but that, like that, ha- so I lived on Del Norte. I lived on uh, Del Norte and Preston. And we would, I mean, there were parties. I, it looked like there were just, uh, it looked like something out of less than zero. Like Julian <laughs> driving up. I mean, it was just insane. It was, yeah. What, why do they, so the parties are just, are they just highlighting artists? Or what are, what are they doing with the parties? Is just saying, hey. It's, this it's is fundraising a, for aid is basically, okay. that's their main gig. Yeah. Okay, they're, cool. they're, raising, they're doing cool. art auctions and they're raising money for charities. But yeah, the, the parties can... They can get crazy. Yeah, bad. I I really I've bet. been to quite a few. I mean, I, I you know, the whole party scene is there's always a philanthropic undertone to them, but that's one of the reasons I got burnt out of the gallery business because when we I worked for two very prominent people. We did we had a lot of artists that we represented, and say you represent thirty artists, that's like having thirty children, honestly, in terms of your time and and energy. And so we would do. 30 art shows a year because we had three main galleries and instead of just doing a group show here and there where they would do a solo show in each of the three gallery spaces. So it was just constant plus five to six art fairs a year. And that drains the energy out of you. Like nobody's business. Are you going out with these artists and, and, and just, uh, I mean, do these guys like to get, I mean, I, I don't know any artists. I mean, what, what are they? I, I don't think they would be social, but they might, I don't know. Like, what are they like? I mean, everybody's going to be into They're, like, their own they're all different it, but they're all, they're okay. all different just like people some are total introvert they use uh-huh. their form of language is their art that is their language that's their dialogue and they prefer to be in the studio and create and they prefer the galleries to market and sell and then others are complete prima donnas you know completely really? self-absorbed dysfunctional people oh yeah some of them are just horrid to be with but their work is brilliant or it's popular or it's profitable for you so oh. you work around all those traits <laughs> <laughs> just just, I mean, the image that's popping up in my head right now is Mugato from uh, Zoolander. Just some just nut job that you've got to answer to. And are they I, I, like, are you uh, are, like, are you telling them what to do? Or are they telling you what to do? What is the relationship like? You try to have the ideal gallery artist relationship is a true 50-50 partnership. And you try to work together uh-huh. on in a mutually beneficial, agreeable way. Um, yeah. But some are just really difficult. They they won't split 50-50. They have to demand 60-40 or 70-30 or something, which just doesn't make any sense. And for the artists that are really good at marketing themselves, they don't really need galleries. Some artists don't want gallery representation because right. there are, you know, some restrictions and, and they always have freedom of autonomy. You know, I mean, they, they we don't give them, you know, say, hey, this is what you need to make. I mean, that's artists do what they do. They That's their department. But, you know, there's industry standards that you've got to agree to. Usually you'll sign some sort of letter of engagement or a consignment contract that says, yeah. you know, these works that you make in the region of Texas I need to be sold through this gallery. But if you have another gallery on the West Coast, that's fine. You can, we won't have access to those works. So people aren't fighting over inventory and, and they're not selling out from underneath you, selling from the studio, not giving you profit, stuff like that. Just the, the so legal of it. Yeah. So I'm seeing this as you're just in my, I, I, I'm really just not that intelligent, but I'm seeing this as you're a broker. You're almost a broker where you have a network of clients and the artist comes to you with, with inventory and they, and you basically say, okay. Well, that's the gallery world. Yeah. I, I am essentially a private broker. That's why I'm an art advisor and I have an art advisory firm during my gallery okay. tenure that, that galleries represent artists. I, as an advisor, ah, represent buyers. I represent okay. buyers, but I know a lot of artists because I still am involved in the gallery scene here in 
DFW and New York and you know Chicago, wherever I stay involved and I get bombarded with thousands of emails by studios all the time. You know, that's how I help navigate, help people navigate what they want. Okay. Okay. Now, do you ever, do you ever talk to wealth managers or family offices for just like buy, that would be natural buyers because all these guys or all these families have these, if moved away from the big bank brokerages and they've established these family offices, art is an asset in a portfolio. It is. To answer your question, in short, no, not that often. I have in the past. I used to work for like the art advisory firm that I worked for a couple of years before branching out on my own. We used to manage AT&T's corporate art collection. That was a huge account for us. So corporations that have the collections, kind of like families and private yeah. people that you utilize art as an, as an investment. I don't do a lot of artist investment because it's just too technical. I'm more of the buy it because you love it. If it gains value later on, it's icing on the cake. I certainly, I can help navigate somebody. Say they want to buy a Matisse print or a drawing. I can tell you this right. is a good $200,000 Matisse drawing, and this is a crappy worth $50,000. There is a difference. I can help and help them understand why those differences are and which will hold better value over time. But I'm not great investment selling this. It's a lot harder to do that. I think okay. it's more technical. It's more scientific. It's more analytical. And that's just not me. I'm pretty organic. It's interesting because it's something that you always hear about Sotheby's and these auctions where there's just these crazy prices going off for painting or yeah. know, pieces of art. Okay, and let's talk did, about that. We could talk well, about this. Yeah, but I'm just wondering, did you ever experience the auctions? Were you ever part of the auction houses? I've been a few times, yeah. I, it's not my preferred way um, of uh -huh. transacting a, a work, an art acquisition, because I just don't do as much as I used to. If I'm looking for a very specific piece of art, yes, certainly auction houses are a great resource. They've got a huge, broad audience, right? Usually when people yeah. begin working with me, they don't know what they want. They don't understand the majority of what's on the market. It's an educational process. So I, I find the primary market, meaning galleries and studios, a more direct and simplified process of buying yeah. art than auctions. Auctions can become very, very tense very quickly. They're similar to like trading on Wall Street, literally. There's yeah. a ton more competition than working with an artist or gallery. Because, like I said, they have a much broader audience. When buying from a gallery, the material is usually fresh. There's limited availability. The demand is there. It's pretty arm's length transaction. Works are in great condition. You know, there's no big premiums you have to worry about. You know, we're getting caught up in some bidding war. It's just for me, I like that process better. What's your opinion of what the Banksy destruction art at auction? Like where he times it it's where performance it's performance art. <laughs> okay. It's, it's what performance is performance art? It, <laughs> oh, there's so many types of art. Um, you know, it's just, it's similar to the banana that uh, uh, Mauricio Catalan's banana that sold at Miami last year. There was an edition of three. It's a real banana that does decay. This isn't like a ceramic one that looks the same all the time and permanent and archival. Are you fucking kidding um, me? Are you serious? You're serious. He sold a banana? No, they sold they sold three of them. It's an edition of three. It was, duct, it was duct tape banana to a wall. It, it was tons of frenzy, tons of hype. I, I walked by the booth because I know Gallery Paradise very well. I've done business with them. And... <laughs> They sold the first one. I can't remember if it was one hundred and fifty or two hundred fifty thousand dollars. No, yeah. and yeah, and you get a Wait, certificate I, of authenticity. But it has like a, it has, a, it has like a shelf life. Like that's a banana. It's, it's going to go bad. It's not about the object itself. It's the idea. That's what you're buying. It's that crazy. That's so fucked up. That is so wrong. <laughs> that is so wrong. That is. I mean, you should have seen the media coverage around the booth. There were filmmakers. There was the, the reporters. I mean, it was. A, total frenzy. And the guy behind me in the crowd, I remember it was so funny. I got chuckled to myself because he's like, I don't know what all the fuss is about, man. I get mine at Trader Joe's for 32 cents. <laughs> <laughs> You're 
exactly right. I mean, who else? I mean, somebody could put I mean, a banana on the wall with incredible amounts of disposable income. You know, do yeah. wacky things. Yeah, and it's just it another, is another. It's another check off their list. Here's something crazy fun I could do just because I could do it. God, that is just such an f you to other people. How much did you like? I, if it became, you know, who's spending the most on bananas? That that's when I think this world starts blowing up. <laughs> and it's, I mean, it, it, it's, I, I mean, the art it's world happening. Is very, the art world is entertaining. It, it is intellectual for me. It's, it's, it's a lot of different things. It, it, on the flip side, though, it's also very humbling to me. Yeah. Um, it can keep you grounded. It can, it keeps me intrigued. I mean, that's why I focus more on contemporary art these days because it's just always in flux. It's always changing, but I'm always learning something new. When you're learning something new, do you get into certain periods? Do you like? Do you have these? Uh, I get time periods where I just get really involved in something. So I'll um, I'll just start I'll just start reading up on a certain topic, and then I'll start reading more and more and more. Is that how you learn about new periods and new and new kind of styles? I have too much ADD to really like climb into the internet and then go over it, but I will go back to topics. And I'll revisit things and I'll attend a lecture at a museum here or yeah. there, or I'll go to some, I just, I go to different art events and it's okay. really just keeping the dialogue open. There's a lot of great resources online that I, I get subscriptions to and I get like my international art news. I have three different periodicals I subscribe to and it's just kind of whatever topic they present, I try to stay on top of just so I'm still always, you know, generally in the know. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Art valuation is... Well, okay. what's a good place? What's a good place you know, for lectures? I mean, do you go to like the Meadows or DMA or Kimball? I mean, are, are these places that they have frequent lectures? Yeah, any arts institution will will okay. have programming, and so okay. it's just part of my professional world. Yeah, you no, know, the, 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 value, the valuation of art is, is is always in question. I mean, it's a personal taste, but uh, yeah, you know, the idea I have to be able to explain or defend my argument on the value of something to people. Of it. You know, like I just sold last month a David Hockney print, and he's one of the most popular, still highest selling living artists today. He's in his 90s, artist from the UK. Yeah. He's very charming. And they were like, why is this print tens of thousands of dollars? It's a freaking print. And I'm like, explain to you who David Hockney is. His painting exactly. at auction just sold for 14.4 million. So, yeah, you got paintings that sell for multi millions. Your prints are still going to be worth tens of thousands. I think that's really interesting because that's why I initially reached out to you a couple of years ago because I was I was working with my mom's estate and she had mm -hmm. uh, just loads of art in the house and I didn't know where to go. Like, I, it, it's just one of these things where I didn't know who to talk. Oh, it's overwhelming for most people, for sure. And it's one of these it's one of these situations where when you're you. You don't really notice it in the house. And then somebody comes by that knows what they're talking about. And they'll look at a picture and they'll say, hey, you might want to put that one away in a warehouse or somewhere safe and just get it out of this empty house because yeah. that's actually worth a lot of money. And it's just nuts how I didn't I lived. I, I grew up in this house. I had no idea. I, I just I just didn't know. And oh, yeah. I think it's interesting. I think it's interesting how when we grew up, we would go to these house parties in high school and we would just be walking around these houses and not really see the at least I didn't. Did you see the art on the walls when you were at friends' houses? I did, but I didn't really notice it or start noticing it and absorbing it and getting interested in studying it until probably high school. Like I noticed 
my mom always had really nice coffee table books. They were always very encouraging of my studying the art. I majored in it in college, museum studies, but I didn't fully understand until I kind of got into the business of it. Okay. Okay. And what, like, I used like, to be an accredited appraiser when uh-huh. with the International Society of Appraisers. So I have that foundation for evaluating art, various kinds. Appraising can be really time consuming and it's tedious work and galleries typically don't pay well. So I conducted appraisals and I got my accreditation just for supplemental income. Nowadays, yeah. running my own business, I just don't have time for them. I refer to appraisal colleagues when people call and ask me. Fundamentally, right. art acquires its value because it has cultural worth and therefore art requires an audience. One person's trash is someone else's treasure. That whole thing. Yeah. Let me give you an example. The- so there's this really amazing piece called The Clock by Christian Marclay. You can Google it. So I'm going to ask you a question. What's the magic word in the art market? It's the grandest of all subjective adjectives. Can you think of it? Um, Masterpiece. Oh, yeah, for sure. Masterpiece. What what allows something to be labeled a masterpiece? Big ass question. So this piece, the clock, was labeled by critics as just this masterpiece. It's a large video projection, kind of a cinematic tour de force, if you will, that unfolds on the screen in real time through thousands of film excerpts that form this kind of a 24-hour montage. So it's appropriated from roughly the last 70 years of cinema's history. And it's a film that clips the chronicle, the hours of minutes into a 24-hour period, often by displaying a watch or a clock, just hence the title. So it's artificial cinematic time fused with real time. So this was, I think, created in 2009 or 2010. And it received wide acclaim and drew enormous crowds around the block at White Cube Gallery in London when it was debuted. And then again in 2011 at Paula Cooper's Gallery in New York. So my point here is that art that's on view and for sale doesn't mean much unless there's a public to receive it. Things start to matter once there's a broader audience to talk about them. So you say a new work of art goes directly from a studio to some middleman storage facility, then onto a collector's wall. That art's never really given the chance to matter. So art by its nature demands community. So when something's really good, it's not arbitrary in my opinion. It's this type of art that makes headlines in the newspapers and send buyers into bidding wars at auction. It's this type of work that collectors will donate to a museum so everyone can be educated and enjoy it. The only way a work of art becomes a masterpiece is when the culture as a whole embraces it. And culture, of course, can only embrace something that it has easy access to. So we have to see art before we can proclaim it excellent. So would you consider the banana on the wall a masterpiece? (laughs) (laughs) No, that's a bit of a stretch. I consider it a master (laughs) clever performance into making a profit, but I don't think it's going to go on the museum's archives anytime soon. That's great. Yeah. It's just, it's a whole different world. And I'm just curious about what, like in high school, like I had Mr. Day's class, Humanity, loved it. That's how I kind of looked, got into the arts, looked, started looking at art in art history. What what was it for you? Mr. Dave's class was a good one, for sure. That inspired me to pursue the art. I just, I wasn't very good at anything else. I understand, I'm a visual person, and I see mm-hmm. the world more visually. I mean, I had a phenomenal history professor in college that started out every day's class with a slide of a painting or a, an opera or some poem or so, something artistic, and it just set the tone, and I was able to retain whatever history lesson whatever dossier we went over that day for about whatever war, whatever person, so much better. So I, I just, that's how I see the world and that's how I learned and that's how I retain things. And you can look back at any point in history 
and you look at the art and that explains yeah. the time, the economics of no, the time. I think you're absolutely the, right. Yeah. Yeah. It's just how my brain works. These days, art history, arts administration, business combo degrees are fairly common at universities. But when I was at Westminster, that degree didn't exist. But the university actually allowed a really unique opportunity where students could design their own major. It was a royal pain in the ass. Like all the deans had to prove it. It took me months to figure out. But it was also really cool because it enabled me to take all the art history classes I wanted, as well as studying abroad. I did a semester at the University of Salamanca in Spain. I still don't know how I passed my economics class. Yeah, it was a blast. Yeah. What is the deal about Salamanca? Because everybody goes, like, all these kids from Texas went there. Do they just have a huge school out there? No. In fact, that's news to me. I haven't really followed up. I don't really stay in touch with with the family that I lived with. Is it a thing now? I I did it because I needed more courses, and I had to take for to get this degree that I designed for myself. I made it super hard on me because I'm glutton for punishment. But I had to take like economics classes and other stuff in a foreign language. And I just signed up Dude, for the university what? of, yeah, I don't know how I passed it in a language that I was still learning. And Spain Spanish what? is very different from Mexican Spanish. Very well, different. Uh, yeah, you've got that aspect, the, the TH that just kills me. I would, I was, I used to go down to Barcelona and just north of Barcelona is this, is this little town called Girona and it's where you do, I think they filmed, they, they filmed Game of Thrones, a lot of shots from Game of Thrones there. And it's just like old Roman, old Roman place, but the, the cycling's insane. It's so good for cycling. And the, and just, you start hearing that in, in the Spanish <laughs> language. I couldn't understand. It was Catalonia. And those guys are, I mean. Oh, and it's yeah. fast too. Woo. Yeah. It's a yeah. Whole, like, By the you, time I you, left, I was almost able to like fully have conversations, but it was, my brain hurt the first two and a half months really bad. <laughs> it takes a while wow. for it to soak in. So how was economics? Just, were you just talking about the demand curve in Spanish? <laughs> oh yeah. So GDP is uh, all the acronyms are backwards <laughs> because they, so it was impossible for me to memorize stuff. I mean, I, oh, it was so hard. And I remember the night before finals, most of the stuff was past fail. And every other day in Spain is some Saint's day. So we're always gallivanting off doing day trips places. Yeah, And I remember studying for finals and it was the night, like I, I was so pissed because Real Madrid was playing Barcelona and the streets uh-huh. going crazy. And I'm like, God oh, damn yeah. it. The one night I've got to study, I've got, I've got to pass this course. And I couldn't El go to Yeah. Oh, yeah. It was rough. That's, uh, but, that's great. That is absolutely <laughs> great. So it's, yeah, there's that rivalry is just, I, I think it was, if you actually look at the history of that rivalry, if Franco... Franco was a huge Real Madrid fan, and so he oh, would he? ice out. Yeah, he would ice out Barcelona. Like, he would hold back economic aid and all these crazy stunts to the Catalonian people. And, dude, they didn't forget it. Like, they're looking for – they want to separate <laughs> that. Like, they are yeah. – It's intense it's over a, there. Yeah, I love the people from Spain. It was – if, if you ever have a chance, next time you go to Barcelona – there is a Soho house there that I think you can you can do this publicly. I've got a good friend that is a member, but the Soho house in Barcelona is just jaw droppingly cool. And they Barcelona was you know, my favorite city in Spain, and I would love to go back. Yeah, yeah, and you okay. can do a full. Well, that's I think that's my I think that's my dream is to be be working out of I don't know like it's not going to be Barcelona, but. Valencia or somewhere where you can, and I don't even speak Spanish. I just, I just love being down there in Mallorca. 
Did you ever get a Mallorca? Mm-hmm. I did. Awesome place. Fantastic food. Just so good. Hey, by the way, you said you were doing some food prep. Are you what are you, are you a big food like you just redid your kitchen? Are you a big food person? I used to be more of a foodie than I am. I'm I got kind of vain and I it's really I, I've just stopped cooking as much to stay relatively thin. <laughs> if I ate everything I wanted, I would just be uh knew it would have kicked me out of the house years ago. But I do enjoy cooking a lot. We're really spoiled because we have a cook that brings us dinner four nights a week. But I like okay. to be in the kitchen. And with, with all this new equipment, all appliances were 40 years old. Like, we live in an old house. And it was just time to update. And now I'm like, ooh, this is so cool. And, oh, that's so fast. And the dishwasher's so quiet. And what's on? It's like yeah. a candy store. Yeah. Oh, it's amazing. It's what I think Aristotle said, hunger sweetens beans. You just see, you're just like, oh, my God, this is so cool. A dishwasher yeah. that actually works. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Normally it takes me, you know, two or three times to get a recipe right. But so yeah. far I've been just trying stuff and like, the, and like, oh, the middle rack in the oven is perfect. It actually cooks evenly and it's just fun. I got to be honest with you in London, we didn't have that. That was a huge culture shock for me because they don't have the appliances that of a, similar to America. And it is, some things are great, but like your vacuum is going to be a Dyson vacuum, but your your freaking your dishwasher your washer dryer is a it's a nightmare because you like we had to hang our clothes we had two kids over there and our living room was just covered in drying racks so we'd hang our clothes all over the living room and when yeah. we came back to when we came back to Dallas I just I was like oh my god I love it I love America so much it's so great I don't care about anything it's, I got a washer dryer and a refrigerator. Yeah. The number one thing, I remember the first thing that I started becoming homesick about when I lived over there was I, when I realized fully how much we pay for convenience. Like, uh, you know, I could just run yeah. to the to the drugstore. I had to go by, you know, run 10 miles past the lavanderia, past the stock shop, past the, you know, market, the Plata Mayor, and then I could go post office. But even then, the hours were all wonky and different. And I'm like, God, I just want to mail a freaking letter. I mean, it was, everything was lower for sure no it's everything everything's a challenge and in london it was harder because it was the amount of contempt that you had to put up with from the person serving you so they would look Mm -hmm. at you and be like oh my god you're an american you're like fuck off all i want is a cup of coffee that's it (laughs) just give me a cup of coffee i started lying to people i started telling them i was from canada Canada? oh you are so weak (laughs) that is weak i couldn't take anymore i just you know i was there for six months so. Yeah. Well, I just I just became just almost jaded when somebody I could just tell I was getting a condescending attitude and I was just the ugly American sometimes. And did you ever that, spend time in thing, Paris? Oh, yeah. I was there almost every other. No, not every other week, but it was about every three weeks. Here's a good story. I would go down. I was working with like Euronext, which is the big exchange down in, in France. I was working with a couple different. So I would go down to. Paris, and I would have to do these presentations to French fixed income salespeople and French fixed income traders. And fixed income people are, look, they're really smart, but there are some arrogant, there's some arrogant people, and just like anywhere else, there's just some arrogance sure. in it. And when you would come in, I don't speak French, and they, I would have to do these presentations. I would do it in English. And a lot of the times, these, you'd be sitting there, and these French people would be like, oh, this is, I don't know. And I'd be like, yes, what? Speak up, please. And they'd say, parlez-vous français? And you just like, no. You know why? Because I fucking heard you on the desk 
10 minutes ago speaking English to your big UK asset manager. So fuck off, dude. You're speaking English in this. And it would just be, it would just be a struggle. And it was only, it was only certain times with that. But I did learn, man, I did learn, like, I love Paris. That is a, that is a fan, phenomenal city. And it's I just a cool city. Oh, dude. Walking around yeah, there. It's, it's just, it, yeah, it's awesome. It's awesome. And my it's pretty amazing. Place, they, if you ever have a chance, a lot of people go down to South France. They always go to Nice. But it, you, all, you land in Marseille. If you go directly north of Marseille, there's this place called the Louvron Valley where mm-hmm. it is this. So there's a, there's a Tour de France goes there and there's this place called Mount Ventoux. And there's just this insane area where the villages are. The, there's one village called Roussillon, uh, I think. And it's just, it's bright red. It's just red clay. It's, the whole village is made of red clay. And it's, you're like, this is out of fantasy land. This is, this can't be real. And there's all these little cool places in Southern France like that. And that's why, I mean, that's the one thing I did enjoy about being over there was that you could find these neat little pockets on a, you know, if you ever had any spare time. Sure. Which, yeah. I didn't, I never really spent much time outside of Paris except for Giverny because I had to go see Monet's house. But, you know, with the art, the Mecca of the art world being Paris for so long before it moved over uh-huh. to New York, I, I just love that city. But I would love to explore more of the countryside of France. So that's interesting. What do you think is going to happen here with New York? Because I don't like I want it to come back. I, I really want New York to come back. But I don't have a good feeling about this. Newt's brother lives in New York. He retired from Goldman Sachs. He got out in 2007, so he's sitting pretty. But uh, he, I kind of check his temperature. He's a barometer because he stays pretty. He was telling us months ago, you guys are not taking this seriously. You don't understand how bad it is. It's going to get worse. Y'all just don't know yet because yeah. he's living it since the very beginning. And I'm worried about it, too. I think it will rebound, but it's going to be a slow rebound. It's certainly not. Even with these vaccines rolling out, I'm glad that they're happening, but vaccines usually take years to really study Uh, and figure out the effectiveness and the side effects. And it's just dicey. I I think there's been some positive things out of this pause in our world, but, you know, I'm, I don't know. We're having us in the art world, we're having to get really creative and all virtual, but I'm just itching to go gallery hopping up there, but I, I won't be anytime soon. I can say that. Yeah, it's there's a guy that wrote a book called uh, what is it? It's uh, Apollo's uh, or Apollo's Heal or Apollo's Arrow. That's it. That's the name of the book. And he talks about COVID and you know how it started. He just goes over the origin of COVID and just goes through actually. That's what the recent book. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, He was on a podcast with Sam Harris and oh cool. I bought the book immediately. I was like, I got to read this because he talked about how long a vaccine takes in three years, and that's what we need. That's what we really need to understand that this isn't this isn't going away for a long time and Mm -hmm. we need to like temper all of the hope that is currently in the air just i'm i'm literally i'm guessing that 2022 will be seeing some normalcy i mean coming i second that opinion yeah yeah i second that totally you know, I, is, I miss traveling because I'm quite the gypsy, but, you know. Look, um, time's going to run out on me because this thing's got, you know, I, it tricked up with the uh, last call with Pat. So your one crazy experience. Yes, I want to hear this. <laughs> I have, I I have many, this. but I, I can't tell you some because I might get in trouble. But here, I can tell you one personal one from my gallery days early on. It was the so, ultimate nightmare travel overseas. Okay. So, yeah. 
right. we had this we had this Van Gogh painting for sale, right? And we had agreed to consign it to a European gallery during the Maastricht Fine Art Fair. Maastricht is in the Netherlands. It's yeah, yeah, what, yeah. I've been there. Tef- yeah. Tefoff. Yeah. It's the Tefoff. It's what widely regarded as the world's preeminent fair of art and antiquities. Old money, old masters. It's not hips, but it's pretty prestigious. So the issue was we didn't have a custom crate for it. And the fair was taking place in just a few days. So the only way to yeah. get it to the fair in time was for it to be hand delivered. So I volunteered to fly with it because it had been a number of years since I visited Europe. And I wanted to go back because who doesn't love Amsterdam? And it became my ultimate trip from hell. Okay, so getting to the fair required a flight from Dallas to London, London to Amsterdam, followed by a train ride to Maastricht. My initial flight from DFW is delayed. And we sit on a tarmac for just over four hours. Super fun. So I'm already on a tight schedule to get this painting there. When I arrive in London, my bag got held up in security, which cost me another hour. TSA does that felt wand test throughout all the contents of my bag. And then it uses me of carrying cocaine. For the record, how how big is this painting? How big is it? Like, is it just enough to get on the conveyor belt and sit in my lap? Like it was wrapped in brown paper back. Yeah. I was hand delivering it. So again, for the record, I was not carrying cocaine. I oh, yeah, swear yeah, to them yeah, up and down obviously. that that's, that's false <laughs> and offered them to repeat the test on my suitcase, which they do several times, and eventually determined that the ibuprofen in my toiletries bag was the only drug in my content. Okay, so now I'm like super late. By this time, I'm totally panicking that I'm going to miss my connecting flight, which I do. It was so late at night, there were no other flights available from Heathrow. There was a yeah. flight from Gatwick. So I find the bus Fuck and you to the other bloody airport. I'm still worried about that. Missing that puddle jumper. You know, I'm running around with a $2 million painting in my arm. It's not a comfortable feeling. Trust me. So I finally catch the red eye to Amsterdam. I'm starving. And I arrive just after 3 a.m. Everyone knows when you fly internationally, you have to declare for an item. I had all the proper paperwork for our piece of inventory. The problem, right. for whatever reason, was that customs line was closed. There was no staff in sight. There's like a, well, few, a few security agents. Well, yeah, but still. Yeah. There's the few security agents that were there were just ushering us to baggage claim. And okay. I'm like trying to plead to them. And they're like, no, 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 just, just shoot me away. So effectively, I had just smuggled our own painting illegally into the Netherlands. Nice. Then another, yeah, really nice, huh? So another pleasant surprise when I finally get to baggage <laughs> my suitcase is missing. After all that, all my shit's gone. So I was like, what? fuck it. I don't care at this point. I just have to have, I, the painting is the most important thing. So I checked into my airport hotel. I'm still safe from sweating bullets for so long. I found a bag of chips and I napped for a few hours until I had to find the train station that would carry me to Maastricht. Time sticking. Yeah, so you're okay. like Sheeple's, Sheeple's outside of Amsterdam. So you're staying at near Sheep, like the airport? Like you're not I don't in remember the, when in, it was. In, okay, okay, <laughs> right, all right. Right, right. So, so I have to get this painting to the vetting committee at the fair before they close. And to add further stress, I realize that there are eight different stops on the train in Maastricht. And oh, I yeah. had no clue yeah, yeah, yeah. which one was There's the closest no fair building. I was going to yeah, I was going to figure all this out, but I, because of all the delays, I just didn't have time. So, I, and then, okay, I'm, I'm in the train and I'm like, where do I go? What do I do? Oh my God, what's happening? And so, you know, I was riding coach also. And about after 20 minutes into it, we stopped. <laughs> we stopped into my You're horror. on the local. Oh, this is great. Yeah. Yeah. An entire soccer team rolls into my train car. They were all upset because they just lost their match. And was like, they were violent, throwing Heineken's. I'm like, oh my God, the painting. I was terrified that their aggressive gestures were going to damage the damn thing. So yeah, I yeah, went yeah. up to first class, praying that the train official wouldn't catch me. And then I meet my guardian angel, Meep Clomp. I'll never forget her name. She was a chatty Kathy, talks forever, telling me uh-huh. a not-so-summarized version of her life story as a model and all of her world travel. She was a yeah. native of Maastricht. 
She lived right there on the river and even pulled out a postcard and circled her flat on it for me. When she finally stopped to draw breath, she looks at the brown paper package on my lap and she asks me what it is. And of course, under normal circumstances, I would never inform a complete stranger that I was carrying a Van Gogh painting. However, I was in the Netherlands after all. And Van Gogh is considered a god there because he's from. Yeah, yeah. It's like entire are dedicated to the artist. Yeah. Yeah, her and Anne Frank. So considering I had minutes to reach a destination whose location was unfamiliar to me, I allowed my intuition to take control and explain to me my situation. She didn't hesitate for a second. She immediately offered to drive me to the fairground. She knew exactly which That's convention awesome. center where it took place. Yeah. yeah, my total salvation. I mean, the look on the galleries on her spaces were priceless when, when we met. Because I'm sure my appearance was less than ideal for such a sophisticated art fair. So anyway, I'm exhausted and relieved from the responsibility of the painting. I wearily rode the train back to Amsterdam, where by now it's oh, late. Like you didn't, like you didn't stay? You, did, you didn't no, stay in Maastricht? This, just... was a quick, this was a quick turnaround. No, I had to get back home because we had other stuff to do. This was just strict, a very strict business trip. So that flight, my return flight, which I'm totally... Dude, I mean, like, this, this does kind of sound that like you were carrying cocaine. Late, <laughs> that, I needed the cocaine. I wanted to find the missing bag that let me have the missing cocaine. I was so sleep deprived. Oh my but then god! That I was delayed for three hours. So when I finally reached the state, I dialed my boss and told him the transaction was complete. He congratulates me for not going to jail and reminded me that if the Van Gogh didn't sell at that fair, I would have to physically return to retrieve the damn thing since I didn't have customs clearance for it. So I agreed, but I made him to promise to give me a full week in Amsterdam by myself with my friends and, you know, yeah. before risking any more repeat of airline anxiety. So, yeah. Oh, my God, that's hell. great. That is great. I'm going to start calling you the mule. I mean, that's exactly <laughs> <laughs> That is awesome. Um, all right. Well, this is definitely going to cut off soon. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Well, thank you. You're so welcome. And keep me posted. Let's stay in touch. I, I will. I will. I will definitely do that. All right. Take care, Ashley. All right. See ya. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Hey, that was pretty good, wasn't it? If you want to help me cover the cost for the show, I'd really appreciate it. If you can go to my website, catfix.biz, that's C-A-T-F-I-X dot B-I-Z, and donate just a few bucks. I just need to, this is taking a lot of time to produce, and the equipment's not that cheap. Hopefully, I have this all set up where you can just put in a credit card or possibly Bitcoin if you really want to. Uh, but it's going to be through Stripe and it's just, it's on the catfix.biz. Click on common threads, then you'll see the donate button. Thanks guys.